Welcome back to Chat with the Conductor, where we explore the music and composers performed by your Alpharetta Symphony. Joining us today is the exciting and dynamic violinist Helen Kim. Helen will be performing the Violin Concerto Number no. 2 by Florence Price with the Alpharetta Symphony February 23rd, 8 p.m. at Alpharetta Methodist Church. Helen Kim is a celebrated violinist and professor at Kennesaw State University. She debuted with the Calgary Philharmonic at six and later honed her skills at the Juilliard School under Chao Liang Lin and Dorothy DeLay. She has won over 100 awards and has appeared with prestigious orchestras worldwide, including the Boston Pops and the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Known for her engagement with both traditional and contemporary music, Helen is also the assistant concertmaster of the Atlanta Opera Orchestra and a member of the Atlanta Chamber Players. Helen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Maestro, for having me here. Absolutely. So, so uh, I wanted to ask you first, um, so tell me about uh, taking from, from Dorothy DeLay. Um, how long did you take from her? I had the privilege to study with her for 10 years. So um, it was an exciting moment for me when my phone rang in Calgary, Alberta. I'm a Canadian violinist, American citizen though, um, double citizen. And she had heard a video of me um, somewhere. I think she was in Seattle and she got my contact information and she talked to my mother. This is when I was 13. I remember the phone ringing thinking, who could that be? And she wanted me to move into her house in Nyack, New York and live there and take lessons with her because that's what uh, that generation did once in a while. And at the time, my parents were thinking that was absolutely no, no chance of that. You know, we were having a very normal life in beautiful Calgary, Alberta, where the mountains are and um, then the year after, um, my parents agreed that I could go, but my mom moved with me to New York City to study with Dorothy DeLay. And there I remained for 10 years with her. And it was 10 of the, the best years of my life in terms of my violin learning and growing as a person. So I owe everything to her. She really just snapped you right up. My, my goodness. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You know, the thing is, like, of course, I know this. I mean, my my uh, both of my parents took from Dorothy DeLay, but not for 10 years and only at Aspen. So oh. which is, of course, how many people know Dorothy DeLay, including our concertmaster, Earl Hogue, also went to Aspen and took from from Dorothy DeLay. So um, that's uh, that's pretty amazing. 10 years is a long time to spend with a legend. So <laughs> I love and I've met your concert master before, and that, that'll be a privilege to play with him. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to also ask, tell me about your, your debut in Calgary, um, what that was like and, and what, you, what you played. Well, um, gosh, I don't remember much, but apparently I played the Vivaldi Concerto. And uh, I, I really don't have a, much of a recollection except for getting to wear a really beautiful dress. That's the first time I got to put on a big puffy dress. And it seemed like a lot of fun. I loved playing the violin. I started when I was five and I took to it kind of quickly. Um, my uh, story with the violin is a little different than most, I'd say, young youngsters in that uh, I asked my parents for lessons. I heard um, I was watching Sesame Street and... My parents were immigrants from Korea, and so there, there wasn't there wasn't extra money for lessons. They were struggling and just building a new life. And so I think I was in front of the TV by myself watching Sesame Street, and then I'll never forget forget the sound I heard coming out of that. It, we had the old wooden heavy TV, 
And, but it had a good speaker sound. And I was wondering what this magical sound was. And it, Perlman was sitting next to the cookie monster and playing the, the violin. And I crayoned so many pictures and taped them up all around the house. And my parents finally were concerned because it looked like I wasn't a very good artist. And they could discern that it was a man with some curly hair holding some sort of object. And my mom, after picking up like 20 of these drawings, she said, Helen, what is this? I said, oh, that's the violinist in the wheelchair. And I, I just want to do that. He's amazing. And I think when she heard that, she said, okay, if you really love that, I will find a way for you to take lessons. And um, growing up in Calgary, Alberta, so that's far north. Um, it's above Montana. It's very cold. There isn't much sunshine during the school year. So the sunset at about 3.30, rises about 9. So it's a great place to practice the violin and have hobbies like that. And um, But they didn't have the resources there, so they didn't even have a 10 size violin in that city. And so we, I had to wait months. And I started on in the Suzuki method, and they had to send away to another city. I had to wait six months just to get my instrument. But I dreamt of playing that. So I learned very quickly. And then when I was six, believe it or not, I played the first one of the Vivaldi uh, concerto. It's, the, it's in the book four, the A minor concerto. And somewhere it's there, there's a video of it, but that I was, um, I do remember the sound around me though. I've always loved that surround sound, whether I'm the soloist or whether I'm in the orchestra, there's just something about live music that it just, you cannot replicate it. And it just, you feel alive. It, it's so different. It, it elevates every sense of you. So I think I fell in love with performing then and um, just of, of every type. I love every genre. It could be contemporary music, it can be opera, it can be the symphony, or playing a concerto like this might be my most favorite form of it, but uh, that's a luxury, so. It is a luxury, that's for sure. Um, so so fast-forwarding only a few years from your debut in Calgary, um, you you are now pretty well-known for, for for playing contemporary pieces and, and diving into them um, um, and also uh, premiering the Concertino by Chen Yi, of course. Um, so how do you how do you approach learning and interpreting new compositions? I mean, is there a particular process, a mindset? I mean, how do you go about it as opposed to uh, some piece that is something that that most of us learn or work on um, in the in the the more traditional canon? Right. It's actually really fun because I don't have anything. I don't have a stamp on it from before I start. So I, I don't treat it differently in terms of uh, the amount of respect and time I give it. I, I usually do without listening to it, for instance. So the Price Concerto, when you contacted me, and I was so excited because I've heard so much about this piece. I did not listen to it on purpose. I first read through the score. And then you're so kind to send me the piano score. Then I looked and I read through with the piano score to get a sense of what her orchestration might be like. And I tried to get a sense of what she was thinking of and the style of her music. Um, in her case, it's very different because I on purpose wanted to get my own approach before listening to any sort of recordings because it's a fairly new work. And I think she really deserves to have many different approaches to this piece. And um, it's it's a beautiful work and, and how it really evokes a lot of Dvorak to me. Um, a lot of Tchaikovsky, a lot of the great violin concertos, but also she has an element of the spirituals. And there's definitely that uh, those those folk melodies in, throughout her music. Um, I had the privilege of playing the third symphony, the Price Symphony, a few months ago with the Atlanta Symphony. And um, in that uh, symphony, I hear a lot of 
a lot of resemblances and similarities. And they said that a lot of that music was taken from, it was plantation music, the melodies that they would sing on the fields, but they're, they're cheerful, they're uplifting. Um, but you hear that this music, the Price Second Vancouver definitely has all of those wrapped into one incredible work. So very unique piece. Um, but it is fun to learn something that has not been played very much, or if in a case when it's a brand new piece, um, I generally like to just play through it, like get the tempos, but then try to feel what I think the composer was thinking while they're playing through, through the writing. So that's kind of my process with that. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense that like, uh, um, I mean, it's 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 a brand new piece. And of course, the first thing we draw on is that connection to to other pieces that we already know. So I, I hear the same things like I heard, especially that the Tchaikovsky in a bunch of places. I couldn't yeah. quite put my finger yeah. on it. I couldn't say, right. like, oh, that's Tchaikovsky right there. But it's like, oh, this is. Oh, I yes, I, I know this. It's like it's it's back here somewhere. It's it's so visceral, like like that, or or the not really the Brahms as much, but but like definitely some some eerily similar moments. I'm like, oh, she she didn't she didn't steal it, but like it's it's she was definitely listening to it. She was channeling it. No question that she was probably listening to some of her favorite violin concertos as she was trying to decide how to orchestrate this piece and how to use the violin. Um, I must mention, and I know you're a violinist too, it's not the the easiest writing for the violin. And there's a great article on, um, I think it's the Stride magazine, there's a, a fellow in London that was working on this and he had this quote that he said he could only play some of the passages once per day, otherwise his hand would be wrecked. There's some that are so twisty and um, just not the most violinistic writing. I think she was maybe stronger with the, the keyboard organ, I believe. Um, when we played the third symphony also in the Atlanta symphony, there's one movement that it, no matter how much you worked on it, it just felt like it was not, it was, you're almost there. So she's very, um, I mean, it's beautiful writing, but again, I don't think she was a violinist and uh, that is kind of prevalent in this particular concerto. So, I mean, she did, she did write it in what 53, like right before it was, it was one of the last pieces she wrote. And right before she died so it's it's entirely possible i mean like even with tchaikovsky tchaikovsky had somebody that he ran everything by right so like right. like he made sure that like you know he could probably play violin pretty well but at the same time yeah. he went to an expert and said does this work does this work and then the 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 you know the middle movement of the tchaikovsky of course was um, right a replacement for another movement that didn't work so right. like so so the so it's possible that she just didn't have i mean it was it was right before she died so she wouldn't have had time to revise right. go right. back to it change it up a whole bunch and ask people what do you think of this how bad is it how good is it whatever it is yeah and it's so fun with a piece that this is pretty recent like 2009 to find this piece up in an attic in 2009 and I think Shermer just published it a few years ago. So I'm talking a lot with a lot of my colleagues that teach at like Manhattan and Juilliard and the bigger institutions. And he's seen, they're saying that with this particular concerto, they, they think that there can be some revisions and I'll share them with you that work better for the violin and better in, in a soloistic setting to help the violin sound just a little bit more clear. Um, but they also agreed that probably shouldn't have anyone to proof this with, like not, not a good friend violence nearby because the time of uh, her passing was so close. That's a good point. And I didn't think about that actually, but um, 
Yeah, I think there are some things in the orchestration too that are that are mistakes. I don't think that sh she made the mistakes. I think they're just right. printing right. mistakes or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the, the, all of that stuff, or or most of it, would have gotten worked out over time. Or right. if not, then it would have been much later. It would have been like an errata sheet or something. You know, everybody right. else would collectively create this list of right. okay, this is what is in there, but really you should do this, you know, <laughs> like we do with every other piece and, and right. you know, like the things we do to Beethoven now, like we say like, oh, well, Beethoven was, was so far ahead that, you know, uh, uh, the, the trumpets couldn't do that. So now the trumpet, the, the instrument itself can do that. So now let's right. do it. The horn had to change out crooks. So they couldn't get to those notes quickly enough, but now, We've got the rotaries, so so let's let's have the horns play it. You know that kind of thing, like like that's right. would have changed, yeah. So and what? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just also a lot of the contemporary music I've done has been written, you know, in the last usually for that year when I premiere something, and it's fun to work on something that's new to me, but is it's so tonal and it's so of the old school of violin concerto. So it's an interesting juxtaposition of like something that's completely new and there are many different uh, it's a different style of writing and it's it's very contemporary but still has that beautiful tonal melodies that I think people will really enjoy that's what kind of sets this piece a little special for me in terms of my preparation and my getting to know it it's very different from the Chen Yi that I premiered for instance right so when you when you go to perform any new piece maybe especially something that's that's not uh, that's not in the canon, that's not uh, traditional. Um, how do you build a connection with a piece like that? How, what aspects of a piece are going to make it a little more uh, resonant to you on some other level other than just being able to play it? Oh, you mean in terms of um, how do I connect to the music that I'm working on? Like Right. Yeah, so so it's truly, I spend a great deal of time with the piece. It's a lot of time exploring, getting to understand the rhythmic language. It might not be tonal, but they might be their their the emotional content through just in the in the the technical aspect or the rhythmic aspect of the music, um, or the atonality for that matter, that that kind of those clashing intervals, those extended techniques. Um I try to better understand by mastering what they've written. So I spent a great deal of time to make sure that I can play everything that the composer wanted to my best ability. If I cannot, I will contact them and ask them what sound that they indeed wanted. That's actually just happened the other week. I'm, I'm premiering something for land chamber players and there was a harmonic there that it just wasn't speaking. I'm like, do you intend this to be covered and muted? And he said, absolutely not. So it's wonderful if you have the living composer that you can run those questions by. Um, but really, usually they've put such careful thought into everything that's written on that page that if I do everything that's written, usually the message or the music will come through. And honestly, it usually takes a few performances of that piece for it to really like gel and connect where I feel comfortable enough to be a vessel for that music, if that makes sense. Um, but it takes a great deal more preparation than let's see if someone else needs to play the Mendelssohn concerto or something that's just kind of just there. And I love that about that challenge. It really forces you to think outside the box and to use this instrument in an entirely different way. I love that when composers kind of push the limits of the, the classical violin to see we could get to imitate other instruments, for instance. And um, I think that's what I love about the challenge of um, music that's written today. I think it's, we owe it to our 
living artists right now to, you know, show what expression is going on, to share that with in real time. So speaking about those those difficult things, I mean, clearly in any new piece this happens, but but especially with newer pieces and the the price, you know, I got to say the one thing I felt so um I don't know, surprising maybe about the price is that it's for the fact that it was written in the 50s. So it's not like it was really tied to time-wise. It wasn't really tied to late romantic literature. No. But it's not very modern. It's very romantic. Exactly. It is strange. It, it, it like hung on to the old, like maybe so she's born in 18, I can't remember exactly, but you know, it is strange because I thought this is, if I were to hear this piece, I would think this is influenced by definitely like living at the same time or shortly after the, of the Great Violin Concertos. It sounds, there's a lot of, I hear a lot of Clara Schumann in her, a little bit of that romantic, melodic writing. And yeah, I was stunned to find when, because I did research after and I'm like, I can't believe that this is written so late. And it's right. it, and so surprising. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is, and, and, the thing is, we're we're pairing it. I'm not sure it's not an uncommon thing, but we're pairing it with the with Beach's Gaelic Symphony, which of course we expect that because that came from a time period in America where there there really was no American sound yet or not nothing distinctive yet, and so parroting uh, parroting European style composition was. All there was, there wasn't an American history yet for composition. Right. So right. all they had was was Brahms and Mozart and Bach and and maybe at some point Mahler and and certainly Dvorak and and all right. that stuff. And that's all they had to compare it with. But right. so that's why we expect that. But by the by, nineteen fifties there was there was I mean there was so much more new stuff. There was. There was plenty that was that was a different sound by then, maybe not always desirable, but still something. Right. New. Yeah, it's absolutely un unbelievable that, you know, that her music kind of hangs on to that old romantic feel. Um, you know, even Dvorak, when he came to the States, he really noted that the the traditional African-American melodies, he thought that was, he, he was really enjoying and he thought that would be the basis of the American music sound. And he would take those melodies like, you know, then the American string quartet, he took all the folk melodies that we'd, he would hear and use those to make his own music. So, and that's way before this was written. So it's kind of interesting that she kind of stuck to what she believed in was her sound because her symphonies are like that too, very tonal, surprisingly. Right. Um, I would not put 1950 on this on this piece. That that's so true. Right, right. I want to go back to. Uh, I, I started to say this before, but um, so so any new piece is going to bring different set of technical challenges. Um, yeah. And and even though this is not the most modern sounding work, I mean, like you like you alluded to, there's things that that um, in it that don't quite lay very well on the instrument yeah. or were there any were the what what was that exactly and, and what else did you find in this piece that that didn't that required you to maybe develop some new skills well you know if for instance there's a long extensive uh let's say about 200 bars of accompanimentalized sextuplets 
uh, towards the end of the piece. And there's no pattern. Usually when there's like consecutive uh, notes like that, there's some sort of pattern that follows, but it's almost like she's testing your concentration throughout because there's no rhyme or reason for it. Even harmonically, it doesn't quite accompany the orchestra. Like there's not much you can hang on to. So it's it's writing like that. I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's always changing, keeps the listener engaged, but at the same time, it's a slightly terrifying for the performer because you are also trying to hang on to a pattern and it just doesn't exist. Um, some of the, the places that is really virtuosic writing is written in a very high range. Like the very end of the concerto, the last two measures, um, I'm basically at the very top of my fingerboard and I have to play an octave with, with the top note above uh, onto the rosin part of the violin for that to speak. Um, and she wants that to be dynamically very loud, like that. that is the apex of the piece and it's very hard to produce that sound. Um, I have a friend that's in Philadelphia Orchestra who recorded this recently with a young, beautiful violinist named Ronald Goosby and they said they had a great deal of difficulty placing the mics because they said they had to add many mics for the solo violin because it's very heavily orchestrated. So that's the other thing. It's a huge, huge symphony orchestra for a piece that is more of a kind of has an almost a chamber orchestra sound in a way and when we start the piece it has that tchaikovsky feel but when the orchestra comes in on those 2ds with the, the full brass and the horns it's it's quite a huge range difference and then sometimes she'll put the the violin the range could have been in a better place the placement of where she wanted um some of the 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 upper range dynamics don't speak quite as well. So I heard when they were recording that they had to really kind of dance around with the mics to make sure that they could get the balance right for the orchestra. Of course, we won't have that problem because we'll, we'll work that magic on stage. So <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the thrill of, of performing live. Um, that's right. You, you know, I was talking to, to uh, some of the percussionists about the fact that um, this piece has so much percussion yeah. And, and I think this is not a knock against her because I think, again, like, I don't think she finished this piece, but like, there's so much percussion called for it. And yet it's not really used very much. Certainly, again, considering the time period in which it was written, there was so much more, at least at that moment, there was more than had been just right. lyrical kind of stuff, lyrical for percussion, but lyrical stuff written for many different percussive instruments, whether they were right. pitched or not, and it right. existed. And yet, um, in this piece, there's so much called for, but it, it's not really used that way. And I think that that she was smart enough. She she would have utilized all the percussion that she maybe yeah. had more time. I think so. I think it feels, I mean, it's a wonderful piece, but I think she probably had more to give with it still, definitely. So so maybe this is a Mahler, uh, Mahler 10. Yes. Somebody, yeah. somebody's going to finish later, you know, yeah. uh, it's just the starting point. And there's always the epic, the epic debate about whether Schubert eight was actually unfinished or not. We don't really know. Exactly. Maybe exactly. that was it, or maybe he had more, who knows. In your experience with, with all this, this, with, with mostly newer music, with, with music, you know, this side of, I mean, in the 21st century, um, mostly, uh, what has been, the audience's reaction to these pieces, these these lesser well-known pieces, lesser well-known, if not totally unknown co composers. And, and, and how do you think that this impacts listeners differently, these performances compared to more traditional repertoire? 
Well, I think it all depends on how you present the piece. For instance, like when I present like a very modern work in a chamber music set setting, a smaller intimate sitting, if I can talk about the piece before I play, or better yet, the composer can be there to help the listener kind of prepare them and let them know their motivation behind the piece, that seems to make a big difference. Um, in a, a larger piece, larger scale like a concerto, um, Mostly it's been positive, I'd say. I think that really people are coming to the concert, they are aware that's not going to be the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, and they want to see the limits and the new, something fresh coming out of the instrument. So I think there's a lot of support out there for live music. I do think that the explanations help. For instance, um, fairly recently I did a composition that required so many extended te techniques on the violin that I wanted to explain every single one of them before I played, and it really helps the listener understand the 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 well the point of the piece often because you are we are definitely doing things that are un untraditional and to for a standard listener they might find it almost offensive so you have to you know educate not educate but explain and help them understand the motive motivation behind the composer that you're trying to premiere their their music so yeah, it is a challenge, though, I think, even in when I see it in the larger concert halls, too, when we're presenting newer music in the symphony orchestra setting, um, they do seem to respond, well, any audience with some sort of the human side of the composer, like, what was his story? Um, and I think that's a really important thing to bring to the table, that whoever wrote this piece, they had, they have a story to tell, and... You know, when I play Florence Price's music, I really wish I could have met her because she's it just it has such bursts of so much genius and power and beauty and just poise. And it must have been a, a beautiful life for her, but a life of great struggle, too. I can I can hear that in, in, the, in the music. And I think that's that type of knowing a little bit about the composer, like um, in this case, helped me relate a little bit more to the piece. And I think for the audience too, when they get to know her story or the, the composer's story, um, you can connect better. And I think that's really our duty as an artist, as artists to sh make sure that we can share that message. I don't think it's enough just to play it once through and hope that um, they'll, they'll understand what the composer was going through. Um, I always sometimes wish with the more modern concertos or pieces that you could play them twice, like right in a row. Because I think the second listen for, for most audience, they would love it even more. I'm sure of it. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, I guess the, the musicians, like we're, we're biased to most pieces that we work on. If it's, mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean that every piece is worth working on. They're certainly not all worth working on, but the ones that are, we pretty much, key into right away so then we work on them uh -huh. for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours just for that first performance yes and then by then we know everything about it and right. the audience gets 15 minutes 20 minutes right best for a for a you know uh for for maybe a longer symphony they get 40 minutes you know and then and then and then that's it and 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 so they get the one pass through and right. then of course depending on the level of the ensemble maybe not at your level but at some other levels you know then then the the mistakes might be the most more distracting part um right. but, but beyond that like that's their only that's our only chance to get it across to the audience right. and they don't get the hundreds of times through it they don't get 
all of the details and they're not supposed to you're not supposed to get right. all those details they're supposed oh. to be so much entrenched in the moment that right they're not out of it for whatever the duration of the piece is and be like my god that was that was an experience why am i crying i don't know why i'm crying it was beautiful and it, right. it was, nothing bad happened so what why why is this so gorgeous right I mean, one thing I do know just from my my years of performing is that if they if the audience knows or can feel that the artists are committed to the music, whether it be something that doesn't sound tonal um, or so shocking, but if the commitment is there, the passion is there, they they feel that and they will be with you for that journey. And so that's really wonderful too, that um, I think if it's an artist's responsibility to respect whatever music they're playing, play to the highest level with the highest commitment. And I think that will communicate to the audience too, in my experience. So in spite of mistakes, even with a, a lower level, like a, a student level, I've seen premieres of pieces um, where the students were just so committed and there were like egregious errors, but still, um, the, the performance is successful because it conveys that music. So I think there's lots of different ways that we can share this music with our current audiences, but it is something to be always thought about when we're programming. I know it's, it's always tricky. Like I know with a lot of my chair music groups, we always do something new, something <laughs> old, you know, just to make sure we can keep everyone in the room for long enough, you know, and usually people are surprised how much they newer work so that that's that's always wonderful when that happens so it's interesting like we we of course like it's it's the same with with programming for an orchestra it's 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 impossible <laughs> to do perfectly and at the same time right i'm always surprised by um and i've been doing this for long enough not for a long time but long enough that like i still i should know better but i still underestimate the audience I underestimate their ability mm -hmm. to to hear a brand new piece of music and be able to take in subtleties of it that I didn't expect they would be able to. And right. there's I don't know if there's any way to get around that for for us cuz we're we're trying to protect two things at the same time. We're trying to protect the dignity of the music whatever the music is and 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 yes. show people good music but at the same time we got to keep the lights on. We got to keep everybody employed. Everybody's got to put bread on the table. So, and both of yeah. those things are valid. I, I believe very much in both of those things. So, so, and, and, and it's, it's, it's rough to like, to like say, okay, so we need more new pieces. We need more pieces that people haven't heard before. Okay, great. But is are those names going to bring people in the door just on the bare minimum to sell tickets, much less, once they get in the door, will they come back again? Right. Right. That is truly the struggle of today. I mean, I want to applaud your orchestra for the programming because when I saw what else is on the program, I thought this is an awesome, innovative program for, for your season to dedicate this program to the, the female composers. I think it's remarkable. I haven't seen another orchestra do that of the same, you know, similar size season. It's brave and wonderful. And I think it, it's such great composers, but I want to applaud to you honestly, because I think it, it's a wonderful step for, you know, arts and for female artists. I think it's, it's amazing because usually they'll put the one female composer and then 
that's it. But you went for it all the way. So I think this is truly a celebration I'm really excited to be a part of. I, I did not know the rest of the program when you engaged me at first, though. When I saw it on the season, I'm like, wow, that is fantastic and innovative thinking. So great. Certainly the board put that task to me and I was like, okay, well then let's put three fantastic pieces on it. And that's what it is. It's, it's you know, uh, I think, um, and, and the, the beach is not a new piece by any means. I mean, it's been performed and recorded, mm -hmm. but I guarantee you not many, if any of the people in the audience will know, know who Amy beach was. And, right. and so now they get to much less Augusta Thomas Reed, which, which, is on the second half of this same episode. So if you're watching right mm -hmm. now, don't don't go away. There's another there's another person to talk to. Um, uh, but um, so, so I mean, having having completely brand new music that's hardly ever been played all the way to to something that was just found only what a few years ago to something yes. that has been around a long time but is far less understood. I mean, that's that's what it's like to go to a symphony orchestra concert or any, any music concert. But, but when, when it's not just easy stuff to listen to, I mean, it's, it is listenable for sure. And I, sure, if it's yeah. not listenable, I'm not going to program it. That's, that's <laughs> just me. But, but it, it is all, it is all listenable. It's just not, it's not like, it's not, the pop, it's not like listening to a pop song, which is meant to be 100% right. listenable the moment yeah. you hear it, no matter what. Right. That's great, yeah. too. I'm a big right. fan of Queen. That's my band. Yeah. I yeah. can listen to Queen all day, every day. No problem. Yeah. However, and it's no insult to get to Freddie Mercury, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put Queen on the same level with anything that Brahms ever wrote. So, And that's not a knock against them. It's just the time period and what they chose to do. And, but, but so, so what we put on is challenging. It's yes. challenging for us and it's mm -hmm. challenging for the audience and, yeah. and it's not for everybody. So that's okay. That's all right. As, as I think, I think I remember this, this one quote by, by of all people, Phil, uh, Philip Glass. And he's yeah. like, it's like people come to me all the time and say, I don't like your music. I mean, it's it's terrible. It's it's boring and, and it's minimalism or whatever you do. And uh, he said, you know what? There's a lot of music. I don't care what you think. So go listen to some other music. So <laughs> we want to get in as many people as possible. And at the same time, it's not for everybody. But if you want to be challenged and you want to expand your own mind, then we, we can help with that. Um so, so going back to this, this, this kind of new music repertoire kind of stuff, how, how do you see the evolution of our art form, of our medium? Like, we're trying to do new music. We're trying to do it with old music, against old music, in concert with, with all music. I mean, how is this going to develop for us? I mean, it's clearly in our lifetime so far, it's, it's developed a significant amount, but it has yet to to go as far as it's going to go in development, and and possibly how does Florence Price's music fit within that vision of the future? Wow, so that that's a lot a lot in there. You know, then we have the whole AI question with with the future of music. That's that's a big one. Um, 
You know, well, I'll start with Florence Price because I think her music will be around to stay. I, I do think there's something about her music that is captivating. It always, I've, I've always wanted to hear more. So when I heard her symphony, then recently I heard her uh, piano quintet, which I think is fantastic. And her little spiritual pieces that she wrote, there's just more music of hers um, that I'm getting to know. And I'm surprised that I didn't know before. So I think there's something about her music that's timeless and she'll remain one of our great American, especially as a female, unforgettable composer. I think it's truly, she's remarkable. And I think I'm so thrilled that you are presenting her, bringing her to the people of Alpharetta because they don't even have to drive downtown to hear something this, you know, we're pushing the envelope here. because not finding many people have played this violin concerto anywhere. So um, my colleagues in the East Coast were so impressed that we're, we're presenting that. But the bigger picture in terms of where this is all going, gosh, you know, I think it's, it's yet to be seen. Um, I think live audiences are coming back. I think there is that hunger for that connection. I think, you know, with all the screen time, there is something really sacred about just spending two hours with yourself and like, you're giving yourself a present. You're giving yourself, your mind, a chance to just reconnect and disconnect from everything else. So I think there's a lot of future. And I think with the composers that I know that are living, I have a few good friends that are composing and their work kind of evolved um, from starting to do, like they start, let's say in school, trying to mimic, you know, the avant-garde composers of the time. And they're, they're coming back to more writing kind of tonal, tonal music with, some of these incorporations of, um, you know, with those extended techniques. But I, I do think that human human essence is always going to be there. That idea that uh, that struggle in live performance and pushing the limits, the technical limits. Like, as you said, some of these composers wrote, in Beethoven's time, for instance, they had limitations of what the performer could do, what the instruments could do. And now they know that they could even add, well, we'll mic the violins there, or we'll add electronics. And a pedal and so there's so many more uh, things uh, ways to open up the listener so i kind of think that the the there this is a, a beautiful time for musicians honestly especially coming out of covid i've seen great excitement on every level at middle schools at high schools anything like halftime shows you know just kids know and audiences can recognize that people coming together producing music sharing that community feeling so I think we have that to look forward to. I think had it not been for the pandemic, it might be a little different, but I think this is might be um, the thing that kind of brings classical music or live music, I should better say, any sort of performance um, as a priority in people's lives. So I think we have a great future ahead. And I think it'll be up to composers that are living now to decide how to kind of bridge that in, in using the the various technical elements that they know. But also, I think that still listeners to me, the thing that strikes them most when they come up to talk to me after a concert and they look at my, can I see your violin? I'm like, here you go. Where's the mic? Where are the electronics on it? We are acoustic. And they actually can't believe when they come to you here, like they'll probably, people like at Alfreda Symphony will say it. They'll probably assume that we have mics on all our instruments or mics around the stage. And I think that's the thing that gets people coming back is that when that those vibrations fill you and you are alive, every part of your body, even if it's causing a reaction that you don't like it, I mean, you are there. So I think that's the kind of fun thing is to kind of push 
you know, those buttons, because then you kind of figure out what you do like. And it, as you said, it's not easy listening. Like I love Queen too. And, um, but you know, it doesn't push all those other buttons that you want to be conflicted when you go to a concert, you want, you want to have questions. And I think it's, it's the truly the human spirit and it's the true battle of life. You want to go deeper. I mean, it just, there's nothing perfect about life and there's nothing perfect about live performance or these compositions. And I think, I think it's so wonderful what uh, especially community orchestras do because to bring the performers from the community in and, ha and, and have them share that with other people and then bring some other guest artists. Like I'm, I'm so excited for this concert. It's actually my favorite type of um, collaboration. People think that people don't believe, but I actually love the passion that the, the musicians have on your stage is it's, it's not, uh, you can't compare it to others. It's almost like when I go to um, uh, my son's middle school band and they're all so excited to play that piece for the first time, that enthusiasm, that spirit, you can feel it. And that's what I love about going to any community concert. It's, it's pure joy and everyone's there doing their best. And I think that is what really speaks to listeners. So it's such a wonderful, um, it's a, it's a terribly difficult job for your organization because it's just countless hours of work and uh, sometimes you wonder and I, I do also sometimes wonder is this all worth it but then you do those concerts and you get together with these artists and, and the and you realize at the end of the day that really to be able to share those moments make it meaningful because it's unlike anything else in, in life so but it is life too so it's one of those weird <laughs> Paradox. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've thought about it a lot recently, and I just, you know, I think that's the beauty of the that human spirit and that struggle. And it's just, it's exactly what life is. Music mimics what the true, true everyday, not not the beautiful, you know, Facebook images that we see. It's not that. <laughs> it's, it's all the behind the scenes. You get it all. So that's what I love about playing. Actually, is that it's it's truth at that moment. And I tell my students that I was just telling my students that this morning when I was teaching, I said, you know, every time you play, that's who you are at that moment, and you must prepare every time to bring your best to that moment. You know, because you cannot figure or count on things to be okay. So you'll it's constant constant maintenance, constant trying. Uh, you know, just perfecting your art so that you're able to communicate the music better to your listener but there's something that's just you cannot hide with music and uh that's truly magical i think i think that's why we're more that's why we're sucked in <laughs> yeah that's right that's right and, yeah. and we suck in the audience too i mean especially yeah. in a case like this like you're talking about with with these these orchestras it's not you know we are not the atlanta symphony and it's, and it's not going to be and, and and we are not trying to be the atlanta symphony and at the same time when we have a concert it is it's electric the yes the 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 alpharetta community and and not even all of it yet more and more of it every single concert but but not even all of it yet has has but but the ones that have that have bought in they're like mm -hmm. they're, they're they're rabid fans and and like yeah. they, they they they're not going to go without coming to a concert and um and and it it draws them in and and they're a little bit more dedicated to it, partly because of what we're we're selling, which is, which is irreplaceable. It's it's yeah. uh, it's uncalculable uh, how how much it can move a person. You can't you can't put a price on that. 
but right. also because they are they are um they're they're laying claim to this orchestra and that right. only happens in this kind of you know very uh, not 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 quite a fishbowl but like like a like a much more manageable size like this is my town this is my right. village right. Oh, right. oh this is my village's orchestra this is my yeah. village's soloist this is my village's chamber group whatever it is like right. like this is you know uh or 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 you know with the case with like 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 Kennesaw State you know is like well that's that's my university that's my university orchestra this is my this is my you know i go there and i get i get my my artistic participation and my artistic like food right from from this huge organization that's going to keep giving it to me and i'm gonna i'm gonna participate in it right yeah that is so true yeah yeah, it, it yeah, really makes you think. I, I love going into schools, too, for the same kind of reason, when the students are really engaged and just to see that joy that you can get. And again, the product isn't what's important sometimes. It's the effort and the journey that is so important. And I think that's just part of it all, you know, where it's part of this whole bigger process. Um, but it's been truly, I mean... These kinds of projects, especially living composers and discovering new works that just are not, you know, run of the mill, easy, not easy listening. I shouldn't say that because they're they still challenging the Tchaikovsky and Mendelssohn, but there's something so special when you bring this type of piece. Florence's Price's Contrera that was just discovered a few years ago. And I just wonder what her family would have thought. It, it, they said they found it when her daughter passed away. So there's, you know, that's a shame that her daughter didn't even get to hear her mother's piece. And, and she, I know Florence Price didn't get to hear it either. And it's, it's wonderful that we can keep that going, you know, and bring, bring more attention to her other works. I think this will probably have some revisions. I'm pretty sure. I think a lot of the, the violence on the East coast are thinking about what, what they think they can improve to make it, you know, even more successful because it's all there. It's all wonderful, but just how to kind of bolster what she's already has on the page. Um, I've been talking with several, and we've edited a few places already, so I'll share that with you, but it's beautiful writing and just truly it's so tonal. And I think it will be up there. I will certainly teach this violin concerto as part of my repertoire. I think it's a valid piece. It's so challenging technically, but it's great for them to get a different style of writing and, and to be made feel, to, you know, have, push those buttons, have them feel uncomfortable and try to, you know, find their home in that uh, uncomfortable moment so <laughs> right right yeah so if anybody is looking to hear helen can play this piece again that is february 23rd 8 p.m at alpharetta methodist church and you can get tickets online at alpharettasymphony.org helen thank you for being with us and we look forward to we look forward to florence price concerto number two Absolutely. Thank you, Maestro. I cannot wait to be with your orchestra and with your community. I am so excited. Thank you. All right. We'll see you then.